I'm Dorothy Kern, and in this talk, I want to discuss some novel and unconventionally uh, ideas about rational drug design. Uh, intriguingly, this kind of um, translational angle in my research was born out of our fundamental um, basic research on protein dynamics I discussed in my first part of the lecture, and from some new adventures in my lab about understanding um, the evolution of proteins. I chose this topic because I think it stresses the crucial role of um, basic academic research, which then can lead to uh, unexpected discoveries all the way to actually translational applications. Protein kinases are the major drug targets of the 21st century. Uh, due to their role in signaling and cell, ci cell cycle control. The human body has about 500 protein kinases. And of course, protein kinases are enzymes which uh, transfer the gamma phosphate from uh, our energy source, um, ATP, to hydroxyl groups of serins, reins, and tyrosines. Um, what I show you over here is the phylogenetic tree of those 500 uh, human protein kinases, mainly to stress the point that due to a combined effort from academics, industry, and the Structural Genomics Consortium, we actually know many, many high-resolution crystal structures. However, despite that fact, uh, the large effort to um, design specific kinase inhibitors has been still a, a huge challenge. And one of the reasons is that all kinases have a very similar fold, in particular a very similar active site, because they catalyze the same chemical reactions. And the major efforts in, uh, in pharma and biotech has been to target that active site. So what happens if you, quite often, if you, if you inhibit one kinase, it will also inhibit others. There's a second dilemma, um, which is um, that the conventional approach is really um, to do a rigid docking problem, which I've uh, demonstrated right over here. So we're trying to, to dock a small molecule into the high-resolution crystal structures. However, if you look at, for instance, at this example over here, if you do a space-filling um, um, representation, you can't even find the drug because it's in the inside of a protein. So how can it get in the inside of a protein without protein dynamics? So where I, I, would, I was arguing that the missing piece for a better, better success rate for, for uh, rational drug design could be protein dynamics. So in other words, we, we would have to understand the dynamic features of proteins and to incorporate in our rational drug design. And of course, that was born out of our, our very basic research of looking at protein dynamics, which are essential for the natural function of proteins. But if it's, if it's a build-on property, why not take advantage of that for designing a, a, a better, better small molecules? Since we are not clever and smart enough to really understand uh, the energetics of proteins and protein-drug interactions at that level of default you need to, I turned to a success story to learn a lesson. And the success story which is out there is a highly efficient um, drug against cancer, against leukemia. Gleevec, which is a multi-billion mo um, dollar um, molecule, is very, very specific for leukemia because, here's the chemical structure, it only binds to the target able kinase and 
binds with much, much weaker affinity to the closest homolog, which is the SARC kinase. So what I show you here, this is 3,000-fold different uh, weaker affinity. So here is clearly a success story of a highly efficient uh, and specific uh, drug. It has been puzzling the field for 20 years. Why is it so specific? Because if you look at the crystal structures, you basically can't see a difference. And in fact, if you look at the binding pockets shown over here, they are identical between the two proteins, except one residue, which is a tyrosine in one protein and the the phenylalanine in the other. And of course, the obvious mutation was made to convert this weak binder SOC into the tighter binding able by putting that tyrosine into SOC, and it didn't work. So I thought this would be a good system to ask the question, to learn more about the unknowns, why certain molecules are so specific. So two very talented uh, guys in my lab, Roman and Chris, took on that project. What I show you here are the historically um, previously proposed mechanisms. The very first one came from high-resolution crystal structures of Abel bound to Gleevec over here, and then Sock not bound to Gleevec. And uh, so what, what, what we're seeing is that Gleevec binds bound in a pocket which is opened up by a loop, a DFG loop, standing for phenylalanine glycine aspartate, a 100% conserved loop in all kinases, which was in the out position, making room for, the, for Gleevec to bind. When the Curing lab solved the crystal structure of SOG, not bound to Gleelec, what they found that this space was occupied by this DFG loop in the in position. And obviously, that led to a very possible high hypothesis, which is just a stereo clash hypothesis. But then years later, um, the same lab succeeded to actually solve a high-resolution crystal structure of SOG now bound to Gleelec. Remember, it's a weak binder, but they could still get the crystal structure. And what happened to the loop? Of course, it moved out of the way. So, therefore, um, the current lab came up with an alternative uh, model saying that maybe residues in blue over here, f um, sort of a little away from the active site, would be residues which are responsible for the differential specificity. They made many, many mutations, but none of those really converted the weak binder SOC to a tight binder able. And I will come back later why this kind of swapping experiment uh, uh, didn't work. So then, being, being actually very clever, they turned back uh, to their original hypothesis, but now uh, invoked a coupled equilibrium. So if you paid attention in physical chemistry, as you know, that the overall affinity for a, for a inhibitor is, of course, the product of all these equilibrium. So in other words, if you have a binding competent state, in this case that DFG out state, and you have a binding incompetent state, and for the weak binder, this equilibrium is 3,000-fold shifted to the incompetent state, you would actually weaken the overall affinity for the inhibitor 3,000-fold. So I very much liked this uh, hypothesis because it's really this confirmation selection hypothesis. And that's the one where really the drug industry has been based all their rational drug design on it. The issue was that there was never direct experimental evidence for this model. So we set out to get experimental evidence for this model by directly watching leaving binding to the protein uh, in real time. So we use NMR spectroscopy, where we can actually have, for instance, uh, a proton, a nitrogen-correlated spectrum over there, meaning that each peak position over here corresponds to one amide, so we have a completely coverage over the entire protein. 
So now all we have to do is take that spectrum and start, start adding increasing amounts of our inhibitor. And watch in real time what happens to our peaks. So that's where the first surprise happened. What you can see is that we get a shift of the peak with increasing drug concentrations, a disappearance, and then a reappearance. So this kind of spectroscopic behavior can only be explained by two, by, by two steps and not just one step. Let me explain quickly um, the, uh, spectroscopically, uh, the spectroscopic behavior of an NMR spectrum relative to the time scale of um, binding events. If we have an interconversion between, the free, uh, between two states, for instance, it could be the free state and the bound state, and the interconversion rate is very slow on the NMR time scale, I would see that state over here, and I would see that state over there. So I would get a peak for the free state, and I would get a peak for the bound state. And so we call that slow exchange on the NMR time scale. So the difference in frequency is much larger than the interconversion rate. If I now speed up the interconversion between those three states, um, I'm going to start to coalesce. And so this is what we call intermediate time scale, where we only see one average peak position. Note that the average peak position depends on the relative populations. So it's always skewed towards the major states. If we now, if I'm starting to move very, very fast, we go in the fast exchange regime where we only see one average peak position but it's sharpening up. So going back to our spectrum, a shifting means that there's a motion faster in the NMR timescale, whereas if you see two peaks, disappearance, reappearance, means that there is an interconversion slow in the NMR timescale which leads out right away that it, the common cartoon of just docking of the drug to the protein cannot be correct. So all you have to do is now write down our schemes, which I explained in the first part, uh, part of the lecture series. So we will have two steps. So what you could do is you could either first bind the drug and then do a conformational change, which is called the induced fit step, or alternatively, you could have an interconversion between two states of the empty enzyme, for instance, binding competent and incompetent, followed by the binding, and that's called conformational selection. Of course, now, the one other thing we knew already about our NMR experiments, that one step has to be fast and one has to be slow. So, which leaves us with a total of four possible scenarios. A quick simulation of the theoretical line shapes based on these schemes unambiguously identified the unique scheme which fits our data, which is a shifting of the peak, a disappearance, and a reappearance. And look at that. It was a model which had never been considered, which is a fast binding of a drug followed by a slow conformational change in the drug-bound state. This was very exciting because for 20 years, people have not considered that. And my postdoc really had to convince me that this model is correct. So we arrived with this very simple two-dimensional NMR spectrum experiment, which took us about 24 hours only, uh, on a new model which could explain the specificity for Gleevec, which is differential protein dynamics in the drug-bound state over here. The, ex the additional power NMR gives us that we have a marker on each amino acid. So all these purple residues over here actually sense this kind of motion. So we already know that it's propagating far away from the binding pocket, and it makes sense because I told you the binding pocket is identical, and this motion between the tight and uh, um, weak binder should be different. So we had a new model, 
and we wanted to substantiate that and we wanted to quantify it. It turns out a much faster way to get quantitative information about kinetics is using a different method, which is called stop flow fluorescence, stop the wave fluorescence uh, um, um, spectroscopy. We need much less protein and we can collect lots of data much quicker. So what is the um, idea behind it? We are using the intrinsic tryptophan fluorescence of the protein, and when the drug binds, we actually get a quenching of the fluorescence. And since we can very fast mix and measure, we can measure time resolved the binding of the drug to the, to the protein in the millisecond time scale. Of course, whenever you want to measure binding of a molecule to another molecule, as you learned, you, you want to do a concentration dependence, meaning varying the concentration, in this case, of our drug Lebeck. So I show you the raw data here, which can be fit with a single exponential for Sark and Abel, and then I plot you the observed rate constants as a function of the Gleevec concentration. What you see right away that the, that the dependence is not linear. If it would be the, the second order binding, it should be linear, depending on the inhibitor concentration uh, shown right here in this equation. So what's happening? So what I thought, maybe what we're seeing here is not the binding step, but the slow conformational change which, which uh, follows the binding, which we measured by NMR. But where is then the binding? You cannot have a conformational change after binding without actually binding the drug in the first place. But I told you from the NMR experiments, we, expect, we expected that this binding is very fast. So how about the binding is so fast that we can't detect it? So I told my postdoc, why don't you do the experiments at lower temperatures? Because as we learned in chemistry, you're slowing down reaction with going down in temperatures. And that was a very good day when he actually measured the, the binding now is at five degrees. He saw a fast step followed by a slow step. The fast step is the initial binding because if you plot this observed rate constant as a function of Gleevec, now it's linear as expected. And then that slow conformational change is actually after drug binding. So from, from the slope, you can get the on rate from the intercept, the off rate, and then this one would be our slow conformational change step. So we can completely quantify our binding process of the drug. So of course, what we want to compare is the tight binder able with a weak binder SOC. And what you see that this slow step is about tenfold difference over here. But remember, we are looking at a 3,000-fold difference in affinity. But in order to complete the uh, energy landscape of binding, of course, we also have to consider the reverse reaction of dissociation, how fast the drug comes off. And for that, you do one more experiment. You start with the drug enzyme complex and you quickly dilute to get the dissociation. And let's look at this amazing big difference. If you look at the tight binder, it takes about 500 seconds before the drug comes off, whereas the very weak binder, SARC, within seconds it's coming off. So we have an almost 100-fold difference in this reverse rate constant of, uh, of this conformational change. Note, it's not the physical off rate, how fast the, the drug falls off, but it's actually the reverse conformational change in the drug bond complex. So if we now combine um, all this information, the answer indeed is in the, is in the protein dynamics in the drug bound state from two bound states over here. And this equilibrium is 4,000 fold shifted to the right for the tight binder and only six-fold shifted to the right for the weak binder. Which leads me to a, I would call, 
prof uh, profound but trivial um, a result. The profound and trivial result is that the affinity, of course, for the drug is a combination of all microscopic equilibrium constants. It's a couple equilibrium. So what we can do is here is calculate what I call a kinetic KD. I call it kinetic because we are calculating based on these microscopic rate constants, which we just measured on the process. This microscopic KD is 8 nanomolar. If you now compare that with the overall KD, we can just measure thermodynamically there within experimental error. So that verifies our model. But more importantly, what is the profound but trivial um, uh, result? If you look at this equation, how you construct the overall affinity of a drug. If you have an induced fit step, meaning a conformational change after drug binding, by definition, you tighten your affinity by the amount of shift in equilibrium over here. So the initial binding step only gives us a drug which is only 17 micromolar. But by having that equilibrium four orders of magnitude shift over the right side, you convert a micromolar binder to a nanomolar binder. In contrast, a conformational selection, the pre-existing equilibrium over here, where Remember, all the drug industry has been focusing on uh, the DFG and DFG out um, interconversion. By definition, weakens your affinity for the drug. So you do not want to invoke a conformational selection because you would actually weaken the, the affinity by the amount of shifting in the wrong conformation. So take-home message is that if you want to make a highly affine drug, you do want to evoke slow conformational changes after drug binding which has an added uh, um, 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 advantage, not only that it's a tight binder, but it actually has a long on-resonance time if this interconversion rate is very, very slow. All properties you want to have for a drug. So here I show you, just visualize this in a movie, it's the conformational changes in the drug-bound state which we want to design in. I've shown you that for Gleevec, but it turns out um, recent work, which we haven't published yet, show that this seems to be a general paradigm for highly uh, efficient drugs. Of course, now you want to ask the question, what are the atomistic determinants for this differential in dynamics in this drug-bound state between Sark and Abel? The, the, the dilemma is that there are about 146 amino acids shown in these green dots, which are different between Abel and Sark. So basically, more than half the protein is different. So which of those are actually responsible for the differential dynamics, which, which makes it so specific for ABLE? Remember, people are trying to do these swaps, where you swap from one um, modern protein to the other to define the specificity. But that's not how these proteins evolved. They evolved in evolution from a common ancestor way there. So in order to understand which difference dictates in a modern protein differential specificity, we actually have to evoke their evolution. So in order to answer this question, what are the determinants, we actually went back to the evolution of this kinase over a billion years. By using uh, the, uh, the advantage of huge amounts of information, of, um, of uh, sequence information of modern proteins. So I don't want to explain in detail what an ancestral sequence reconstruction is, except that you're using modern proteins, and most importantly, if you want to do it, you have to hire two very brilliant homo sapiens, which I did with Roman and Chris, and then calculate, based on this knowledge, first the um, phylogenetic tree, 
and then probably amino acid, uh, amino acid sequences of those ancestors. They are probably sequences, and uh, so you, you, at the end, you now have to finally test them, right? So we synthesize these theoretically sequences synthetically and then express purify those proteins. Note that you cannot even find fossils these days anymore which go that far back. So these are really theoretically calculated sequences. I'm very much an optimist, but when my grad student told me that those ancestors have up to 100 amino acid differences in amino acid sequence to anything you find today in nature, I thought they will be unfolded and dead at the bottom of the tube. But he convinced me that all of them are fully active. So just think about it. I'm sure all of you have, have done some mutations to your proteins. You make 100 mutations and they're fully active. So that actually shows the power of our bioinformatics analysis to calculate correct sequences. So now having those, you can ask the question, how did the um, differential affinity to, to Gleevec evolve? And using the color score scale yellow for the last oldest ancestors, common ancestor between those two proteins, and then green to blue towards, um, towards modern able type binder, and then orange to red towards modern SOC. And what you can see that the common ancestor has had a quite weak affinity to Gleevec, and by moving along the evolutionary tree towards able, it gets tighter and tighter. So now we're in a very exciting position because we can now follow the evolution on the energy landscape. Um, we can do all our fast kinetics experiments. I use a color coding. I just show you these data so that I don't, didn't make up data. So these are actually a lot of data my post on grad student collected. Here are our fast on rates, our conformational change, and then our dissociation. I just want to now summarize all these kinetic data on this summary slide because that is actually very impressive. It turns out that the physical binding step, the on rate and the physical off rate, are always an experimental error between all these proteins. So in other words, what, what industry has been focusing on, the initial docking, is basically the same. What defines a tight binder from a weak binder? It's only the slow conformational change after binding. And what you can now see during the evolution, that it's a gradual change in this forward rate constant and, of course, a gradual change on the reverse rate constant, which then results in dialing in the different differential affinity. Just one more side note, because that is what, of course, the field focused on for 20 years, the DFG in, DFG out uh, uh, flip. It turns out from these kinetic informations, we even get first kind of a handle on how this equilibrium shifts. Because this fast kinetics of the first on rate over here the amplitude is directly related to the population in the DFG out state. If you have a large uh, a population over here, you get a large amplitude. And that's what we see in, in, in ABLE. And for SOC, we have a much smaller amplitude. But note that this equilibrium only accounts for about threefold difference in affinity. That was just sort of a little side treat for, the, for people who like kinetics. But the take-home message now is that we actually start to zoom in which residues are responsible for the differential dynamics and therefore selectivity. We started with 146 amino acid differences. In doing the ancestor resurrection, we could narrow it down to only 15 residues, which are the difference between a weak SOC binder and a tight able binder. 
For that, of course, we also needed the high-resolution crystal structure of our very ancient enzyme, which we solved bound to Gleevec. And that's when we started noticing structurally what happens. Because if you only have 50 amino acids differences, which are the difference between a tight and weak binder, you can structurally start to analyze them. These two are weak binders. And see how the P-loop, another fully conserved feature of protein kinases, is cuddling over the drug in an extended conformation. In contrast, the tight binder Gleevec, this P-loop is kinked therefore occupying more interactions with the drug. And that, of course, has been noticed before uh, by the current lab. The question is, how, how can you do the P-loop kinking? There are two answers. The first one was directly in the binding pocket. I told you, if you paid attention, that this tyrosine is a phenylalanine in the weak binder. Why did the substitution of this phenylalanine to the tyrosine did not result in the kinking of the loop? Because what you needed was this hydrogen bond to the asparagine and the flexibility of the glycine. So the first three changes between the tight and weak binders are all three of them. But even with all three of them, you still would not kink the loop. What else is needed? These are the other 10 or 12. Where are they? They are far from the binding site. And they had to be far from the binding site because the binding pocket is identical, right? But now what happens? If you compare the weak binders our ancestor, and SOC, to the tight binder able, the answer has become apparent. It turns out in the weak binders, my P-loop is straight-jacketed by hydrogen bonds in my, in my elbow. So the hydrogen bonds rigidify my P-loop far away from the P-loop that it cannot move. What happens now, if you go to the tight binder able, it's losing that um, rigidity by either replacing the hydrogen bond donor or the hydrogen bond acceptor in these hinges, and thereby allowing flexibility. So it's a reoccurring scheme to what I told you in the first lecture series, dynamics far away are dictating flexibility because it's a collective motion. So hydrogen bond networks in SIG, ARC, and ABLE, are, uh, SOC and ANCESTOR are broken and ABLE, and therefore allowing for this very efficient conformational change in the drug-bound state. We used evolution to answer questions of a modern cancer drug. But of course, the kinase haven't evolved to be inhibited by this man-made uh, drug. We sort of used a very unusual trick to go after this question. But what I want to tell you is that actually, of course, modern evolution, evolution happens today. And that is one of the biggest problems in cancer. Gleevec works like a charm. But... For 30% of the patients, after months, they become resistant because the protein escapes the high affinity to the, to, um, to the drug by making mutations in the protein. And that is one of the biggest problems in cancer treatment. When we looked at all the known uh, resistant mutations in, Gleve in, in, in ABLE for Gleevec, shown in, in red dots over here, the dark red dots are residues which coincide with the dynamic hotspots I just told you we identified to be essential um, for, for affinity. So it, I, I think it's very striking to see that nature escapes while tweaking these dynamic hotspots to become resistant. And of course, for the future, and that's what I want you all to think about, how we actually can use that knowledge to now overcome one of the biggest bottlenecks in cancer treatment. I show you one of them as an example. 
So here's one of them, the threonine, SWE15, isoleucine, the most famous resistant mutation, also called gate fever mutation. In the literature, it was described that it's escaping by actually steric hindrance of the drug binding to the, to the protein. We did our experiments. Binding is identical. But what screwed up is our conformational change over here. So again, emphasizing why it is so important to look at mechanism of binding and mutation if you ever want to get ahead of the game, ahead of cancer. Um, so to come, to come back and, uh, to the original question, I hope I have sort of uh, provoked your thinking of, to think outside of the box that there are a lot of uh, low-hanging uh, low fruit to go away from the voluntary body docking problem and to put protein dynamics at the heart of drug discovery. And to reemphasize, if you, the better we understand the free energy landscape of our targets, the better we can utilize the built-in properties which are different between the different kinases to inhibit or for others to actually activate. And it's both the flexibility in the apoprotein and in the drug-bound complex, which we actually have to understand in rational build-in. So I told you some of the players who actually really were involved in this uh, very unusual and surprising uh, story. Um, I have a fantastic lab at Brandeis from biomedical engineers all the way to, to chemists and, and biochemists. And I want to thank them that they uh, really are as enthusiastic and uh, to, to work, to do the research with me and thinking outside of the box. Thank you.